The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV can now be heard on Audible. Yes, between chapters of Ready Player Two, enjoy Forgotten TV on the Audible mobile app available on iOS or Android devices. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support the show on Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of Forgotten TV. Other ways to support are right here in the show notes or easily seen at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. Yes, Cursor, let's get started. For thousands of years, man has pondered the nature of his own intelligence, leading to fantastic legends where intelligence is imbued to artificial creations. Ancient Greek mythology tells of the giant Talos, constructed of bronze, who acted as the guardian of the island of Crete. Hephaestus was said to have forged Talos with the aid of a cyclops and presented the automaton as a gift to Minos. Spanish philosopher Ramon Yule in the 13th century developed several logical machines devoted to the production of knowledge by logical means. In his writings, he described his machines as mechanical entities that could integrate basic, undeniable truths into simple, logical operations, calculated by the machine by mechanical means in such a way as to produce all possible knowledge. In the 17th century, prominent thinkers of the day, Leibniz, Hobbes, and Descartes, explored the possibility that all rational thought could be made as systematic as algebra or geometry. In fiction, 
The notion of artificial intelligence dates to at least 1872, with Samuel Butler's novel, Erewhon, which explored the evolution of consciousness among self-replicating machines that may supplant humans as the dominant species. In the 1950s, authors such as Frederick Pohl, Isaac Asimov, and Arthur C. Clarke began to explore the concept of the human mind being uploaded intact into the computer world. Not surprisingly, television soon dealt with these topics. Star Trek dealt with artificially intelligent creations running amok, usually with disastrous consequences. M5, the ship's attacked this unit. This unit must survive. This unit is the ultimate achievement in computer evolution. It will replace man so man may achieve. I am nomad. I am perfect. That which is imperfect must be sterilized. I am Andrew. You have intruded. Your devices have been neutralized. So it shall be with you. I am Andrew. The 1970s gave us Colossus, the Forbin Project, and Demon Seed, as well as Star Trek The Motion Picture, featuring a massive artificial intelligence that turned out to be a Voyager space probe returning to Earth to find its creator. Of course, not all AIs in entertainment are malevolent. What, what do you mean I'm taking this too seriously? Yes, I know. But we have to talk about Tron first. Be patient. Which brings us to the 1980s and the origin of our show topic. For the origins of Automan are inextricably tied to the 1982 film, Tron. It happens inside the computer in a dimension man has never seen. Kevin Flynn, computer genius, is programmed into the world of the computer. prisoner in an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. Tron, an adventure inside the computer, rated PG. Tron was a science fiction adventure film written and directed by Steven Lisberger from a story he originated with writer Bonnie McBird. For the first time, the unseen digital world is visualized as Jeff Bridges' character, Flynn, is dematerialized into a software existence inside a mainframe computer, where he interacts with programs and lives out video games in his attempt to escape. To say the film was groundbreaking, high concept, and like nothing seen before is an understatement. Tron's origins came out of Lisberger's fascination with early 70s video games, like Pong. Working with partner Eric Ladd, Lisberger Studios produced short animated films and segments for video production. Their animations were used in commercials for Bubblicious, various radio stations, video production logos, and sequences for PBS shows. Lisberger was introduced to stage producer Donald Kushner, and the pair formed a partnership in 1977 and moved to the West Coast to work together. They pitched an animated special to NBC called Animal Olympics, which aired in 1980. And now, live via satellite, Animal Olympics. Among several animators that would make top names for themselves in the industry, they employed 
Bill Croyer, who had worked on Disney's The Fox and the Hound for this project. Building on a simple backlit animated character they called Tron, used in their own studio logo, and consulting with experts like computer scientist Alan Kay, the studio developed concepts and a storyline for what was initially intended as an independent animated feature film. With some financial backing from a computer technology company, the production evolved into a live-action film that incorporated animated elements in a way never attempted before. The project was shopped to several studios before taking it to Walt Disney Productions. The 1982 film was the result. Tron was cutting edge and ahead of its time in both story concept and visual effects. While it was generally well-received by audiences, coming along at the height of the video arcade game craze of the early 1980s, some of the concepts went above the heads of viewers. Remember that this was still the dawn of the home computer age, with many people only this year being introduced to concepts and terminology we now take for granted. Hollywood also didn't quite know what to make of the film, which incredibly didn't even receive an Oscar nomination for visual effects. Not understanding the processes involved, the Academy reportedly felt at the time that using computers was somehow cheating. As told by Glenn Larson in a 2012 documentary for DVD, following the release of Tron, producer Donald Kushner was looking for additional projects where he could apply visual effects concepts and methods similar to what was developed on that film. Along with new production partner Peter Locke, they visited Larson, a TV-producing legend who had been successful with series like Alias Smith & Jones, Quincy M.E., Battlestar Galactica, and Buck Rogers about developing a series, one that, in a flip of the Tron narrative, a sentient program would come out of its digital existence and manifest itself in our three-dimensional world. More on the series development later in Behind the Scenes. But now... Yes, Cursor. Now it's time. Now, stay tuned for Auto Man. Next. Episode 1, 
Automan, a 90-minute presentation aired on December 15, 1983, at 8, 7 central, right before Glenn Larson's other new series premiere, Masquerade. Written by Glenn Larson and directed by Lee H. Katzen, who had directed the pilot movies for Space 1999 and Man from Atlantis. Our main actors were Desi Arnaz Jr. as Walter Nebaker, Chuck Wagner as Auto Man, and Heather McNair as Officer Roxanne Caldwell. The episode begins with an opening narration that takes us right into the story. This is the true story of Walter Nebaker, doing what he likes best, fighting crime in the streets. You see, Walter's a policeman. Unfortunately, the chief doesn't want Walter on the streets. Captain, get back to your cage, boy. Now! So Walter must fight crime in his own way, in the computer room. That's where he's an expert. Fortunately for me, Walter's advanced knowledge of electronics led him to experiment with what is called a hologram. That's a very fancy word for a three-dimensional picture that, when perfected, can be made to look real, sound real. As a matter of fact, given enough power, it can even be made to feel real. That's kind of what got me into this world. My name is Auto Man. You must be Walter Nebaker. How did you know that? It's on the programming you fed into my system. I must say, Walter, you're very good. Very good indeed. I look wonderful. If you do say so yourself. Well, you programmed me to be honest. But tell me, why did you call me Auto Man? It means that you're the world's first truly automatic man. You can do anything because you're not real. Oh, but I am. I'm as real as you are. Just different. And thanks to you, perfect. Nobody's perfect, Auto Man. Well, that's not true, Walter. You've programmed me to observe other people and do whatever they can do as well as they can do it. Jimmy Connors playing tennis, John Travolta dancing. In fact, on a scale of one to ten, think of me as an eleven. I've created a monster. No, what Walter really created was a wonderful force for good. Auto Man. That's me. Investigating the kidnapping of top corporate engineers, Walter's friend, Lieutenant Curtis, goes missing, abducted to Switzerland by baddie Lydell Hamilton that works for security contractor Global Guard Security. Having cross-referenced all the data Walter programmed into the LAPD computer system, Automan and Cursor materialize when Walter and co-worker Roxanne take a break for a cup of coffee and show up at a local coffee shop when harassed by a motorcycle gang. Walter and Automan continue Lieutenant Curtis's investigation that leads them to Switzerland to bust up the ring of criminals. Walter earns the respect of Lieutenant Curtis and Roxanne while having to dodge the ire of Captain Boyd who doesn't fully respect the computer division of the force. Guest-starring Patrick McNee as main bad guy Lydell Hamilton. Character actors Sid Haig and Mickey Jones were bikers that harassed Walter and Roxanne. And Doug McClure made an appearance. 
First, I have to say that three-and-a-half-minute opening segment is officially the longest of any series I have come across yet. If paired with the traditional 30-second teaser, this eats up an incredible four minutes of runtime. It also strikes me as a recap of an unaired pitch reel that might have been shown to the network, or perhaps a two-hour pilot that was edited down to 90 minutes, with Automan already established as the story gets underway. The first episode establishes some of the rules of the Automan universe, such as Automan can ostensibly materialize only at night, when the city's power usage is reduced. No information is given on who was being billed for all this power usage. However, this requirement quickly fades into the background in subsequent episodes. Automan can see through walls, a la Superman's X-ray vision. He can alter the density of his electrical field, meaning he and his vehicles can pass through solid objects and even allow a person to merge into his form, meaning Walter can put Automan on like a suit, making him essentially invulnerable while they are merged. Cursor, Automan's seemingly sentient sidekick, can evidently materialize or res up any vehicle or object needed at any time. While the vehicles Automan and Walter travel in are usually outlined with glowing blue lines, this is not required, and Cursor reses up everything from a full-size Lockheed Jetstar to a Sherman tank in this episode. One gimmick set up in this initial episode is that Automan can talk to various computer systems, which are usually anthropomorphized. The elevator with a male voice is pleased to be of service to Automan. Would you mind taking this car out of service and running it up and down until further notice? It would be my pleasure, Automan. And the traffic light system, clearly female, obliges Automan's traffic commands with pleasure. Green, please. Of course, Automan. This is repeated in future episodes with a slot machine, an ATM, and so on. Automan also claims to know Pac-Man and Donkey Kong indicating an unseen world that exists in computer and video game systems that echoes themes introduced in Tron and would later show up in the Wreck-It Ralph movies. Apart from Walter, only Roxanne knows of Automan's existence and true nature. Premiering late in the season, Automan replaced Glenn Larson's Trauma Center, which was pulled from the schedule after 10 episodes. It aired on a Thursday night against a new Magnum P.I. and Simon and & Simon on CBS and the special Christmas in Washington and a new Cheers on NBC. Automan plays second with a 13.7 rating. The writing on this premiere episode left something to be desired. The opening sequence seems taken from some unseen pilot or pitch reel, as I mentioned, while the episode also seems to be padded to fill the 90-minute time slot. Even paying attention, the motives behind the bad guys was hard to follow. Critic Steve Sonsky summed it up as, Some nonsense about a global security agency snatching up the world's scientists and squirreling them away in Switzerland. Cursor is right. It's a show that tonally you aren't supposed to take too seriously. With that in mind, the ultimate fate of lead criminal Lydell Hamilton and his cohort was vague as Cursor dematerialized the private jet at altitude, leaving the viewer to conclude they were allowed to fall to their deaths, something seemingly at odds with the light tone of the show.
I wasn't alone in this concern, as brought out by Desi Arnaz Jr. People do get killed, and we don't really know how to deal with that. The network wants a certain amount of action and adventure, and the producers feel they have to concede to some degree. The fact that Walter and Ottoman collaborated in carrying out what amount to extrajudicial killings is unsettling. The character of Walter Nebaker is established as a timid computer nerd who has his name constantly mispronounced by the captain as Nebish or Nebisher, a running joke they would carry on throughout the series. Like on Larson's Manimal, the female police character Roxanne Caldwell's position is never stated and is somewhat vague. In fact, in the pilot, it seemed she may have been an assistant or a secretary or something, and it wasn't until the following episodes I concluded she is a plainclothes officer of indeterminate rank. Walt Belcher of the Tampa Tribune interestingly brought out, The title doesn't make sense. The hero is not an automobile, nor is he automatic. In fact, when asking nephew Tommy about Automan, this was indeed the first thing he brought up. Is he a man that can turn into a car? No, but Automan was an artificial intelligence. Two of them, in fact, if you count Cursor, manifested in the real world as a hologram made solid through the use of electromagnetic fields. This concept would later extensively be used and much better explained on Star Trek The Next Generation's holodeck, and especially Star Trek Voyager and its holographically generated Doctor. Like Voyager's Doctor, Automan seems to be self-aware and sentient. Exactly how Automan materializes in the real world is never explained, as no holographic emitters or projectors are ever referred to. Thus, this was pure Glenn Larson TV fantasy. And if you pay attention, you'll note Lydell Hamilton's company Global Guard shows up again in the pilot of Glenn A. Larson's series, The Highwayman, in 1987. Episode 2, Staying Alive While Running a High Flashdance Fever. Written by Glenn Larson, directed by Winrich Colby. Rick Colby would direct three Automan episodes and became a very prolific TV director, helming nearly 50 episodes of various Star Trek series, Knight Rider, Spencer for Hire, Hunter, Millennium, and many other shows. We'll have comments from Colby later in the podcast. When a meeting with an informant goes south for Lieutenant Curtis, Walter summons Automan from a payphone dialing into his home computer. The chase leads to the home of a prominent judge, which gets Walter in trouble. Soon, Automan is tripping out to Vegas to follow a lead, which gives him a chance to use his Saturday Night Fever disco dancing skills. And Walter and Otto discovered the judge's secretary, along with the Vegas mob, were framing the judge as corrupt in order to get rid of him. But this puts Roxanne in danger. Guest cast, Mary Crosby, William Wyndham, Don Gordon, and Robert F. Lyons. First, the neat. Cursor can text Walter on a computer monitor. Pretty clever. Automan displays a new power. He can discharge his entire energy field and incapacitate an opponent a la Force Lightning from Star Wars. Also, we have the debut of the Auto Chopper. Now, the cringeworthy. Evidently, Walter can just call up Auto Man on anything computerized, even a cash register, as if all things computerized were connected via network in 1983. 
Also, in the dancing scenes on DVD, it is clear a double is doing the dancing in the long shots, and when his back is turned to the camera. This, in fact, was one of the dancers from the Saturday Night Fever sequel, Staying Alive. Which brings us to this tidbit. When Walter says the three movies he is inputting into Automan are Saturday Night Fever, Flashdance, and Staying Alive, what really shows on Automan's chess panel is actually scenes of Automan dancing later in the episode. And like many shows of the era, popular songs were used in background audio of scenes, often as diegetic music, which the viewer assumes is being heard by the characters in the story. This episode featured Beat It, More Than a Woman, Stayin' Alive, Maniac, and She Works Hard for the Money. But listening closely, it seems that these were all cover versions, as would be the case in every episode, except for one, which we'll talk about when we get to it. Also, Automan is introduced to Lieutenant Curtis as a Fed working with Walter. Episode 3, The Great Pretender. Written by Sam Egan. Directed by Kim Manners. Third, America's newest superhero becomes a crime boss. To get in my way, he'd be eliminated. And he gives the syndicate a run for its money. Just don't forget your own limitations. You've got to stop it, Donald. Take everything I've got, Walter. Auto Man. Thursday on ABC. A shipment of government paper used to print money is hijacked, and Walter and Auto Man are on the case. Using his newly acquired gangster movie database, Auto Man becomes gangster Mr. Auto. We get to see the auto chopper make nearly 90 degree turns in flight, and the bad guys put out a hit on Mr. Auto, endangering Walter and Lieutenant Curtis. The great Clue Gallagher plays the main heavy here. With 165 acting credits, he appeared on many a TV western, cop, and detective show and showed up on nearly all Glenn Larson productions. The writer of this episode, Sam Egan, would write four episodes and was supervising producer of the series. Kim Manners was a very familiar name in 80s and 90s TV and would direct Matt Houston, Hardcastle and McCormick, 21 Jump Street, and be one of the driving creative forces behind The X-Files, directing an incredible 51 episodes and producing 159. He sadly died of lung cancer in 2009 at age 58. Now, I have brought up this episode before. There is a scene where Walter and Otto take a cab, and the cabbie plants a bomb to blow them up. However, if you pay careful attention you'll see Jonathan and Brooke from Manimal in the back seat, and not Walter and Otto. Yes, this was a scene shot for Manimal, episode two to be exact. The episode aired two months earlier on rival network NBC. By wisely reusing the footage, the two productions were able to split the cost of this expensive stunt, which involved blowing up a car. They, of course, didn't count on the availability of YouTube and DVD freeze frames over 35 years later. Yes, Manimal was another Glenn Larson Fox production airing at the time. In the opening scene of Episode 7 of Manimal, you can see Walter and Tanya, guest actress Camilla Sparb, walk in front of the Golden Pagoda restaurant in Chinatown that corresponded to a scene from the pilot episode of Auto Man. The Automan scene takes place 38 minutes into the episode. 
The Manimal episode aired five days before the Automan premiere. Yes, Manimal and Automan evidently shared the same Larson verse, even though they were on competing networks. If you recall from the Manimal podcast, Jonathan Chase appeared on the Glenn Larson series Nightman 15 years later. You can't help but wonder that if Automan had a longer run, Manimal might have shown up on that show. There's also an argument the later series, The Highwayman, can be included, since Global Guard Security from the Automan pilot shows up again in the future, set just beyond now. The mind reels with the possibilities. Popular songs heard, cover versions of Old Time Rock and Roll and Rick Springfield's Human Touch. Episode 4, Ships in the Night. Written by Park Perrine. Directed by Bob Claver. This was Claver's only Automan episode, but he was busy in the 80s directing The Facts of Life, Mork and Mindy, Gloria, and was one of the main directors used on Small Wonder and Out of This World. An American businessman financing construction in San Cristobal thinks he's being set up to smuggle cocaine, but is promptly thrown out of a cargo plane into the ocean. Lieutenant Curtis and Roxanne are sent to investigate. When the same thing is about to happen to Curtis, Ottoman and Walter follow to assist in crushing the local crime ring. Guest cast, Scott Marlowe, France Nguyen, and Steve Hanks, probably best remembered for the 1980 series Bad Cats. This first episode of 1984 seemed out of place. The reason LAPD officers were investigating disappearances on a fictional Caribbean island instead of, say, the FBI or some other agency is not explained very well. It's as if the episode was written around some stock footage. This was a totally forgettable one that could have been written and been a better fit for virtually any of Glenn Larson's other shows. And some of the ideas are already being recycled. Automan disco dancing and gambling, for example. Automan experiences his first kiss, and as we'll explore later, Automan seems programmed for just about everything, but remains ignorant of certain aspects of human sexuality. His kiss was with multi-ethnic Eurasian actress France Nguyen, who herself had a history with on-screen kisses. She had kissed Robert Culp in a 1966 episode of I Spy, in a relatively early example of an interracial kiss on television. An Ottoman using the cover of a federal agent is cemented as Lieutenant Curtis recognizes him in San Cristobal. Popular songs heard? The tide is high and down under. Episode 5, Unreasonable Facsimile. Written by Sam Egan, directed by Winrich Colby. After absorbing episodes of the soap opera Abilene, Automan investigates the murder of a businessman who was about to reveal that inferior parts had been used on a line of helicopters, throwing a wrench into the sale of the company. The investigation involves the dead man's daughter, Rachel, who Automan promptly falls in love with. But his newfound soap opera obsession, along with his feelings for Rachel, may cause problems when she's abducted. Guest cast, Robert Sampson, Glenn Corbett, yes, Zephram Cochran from Star Trek The Original Series, and Delta Burke in a somewhat early role for her. 
Two and a half years later, she was cast in the role of Suzanne Sugarbaker on Designing Women. Tidbits from this one, the character Rachel rides in the autocar, but nothing is made of the fact when it makes those high-speed 90-degree turns. The soap opera Abilene is almost certainly a reference to popular nighttime drama Dallas, both referencing cities in Texas. Dallas was a Friday night CBS ratings powerhouse that toppled many a fantasy genre show, such as Dark Room, The Phoenix, Blue Thunder, Manimal, V the Series, Street Hawk, and Something is Out There. We get more Automan character development. He tears up the piano, able to instantly pick up the skill by observation. He knows enough to ask a young woman the classic line, Your place or mine? but doesn't really understand the implications of such a question. Popular music heard, Sweet Dreams, and Owner of a Lonely Heart. Episode 6, Flashes and Ashes, written by Doug Hayes Jr., directed by Kim Manners. Following the death of a police officer that was a friend of Walter's, Lieutenant Curtis investigates a group of corrupt officers running weapons on the black market, even when advised not to by internal affairs agent Whitaker. This leads to Automan engaging in a $25,000 tennis match and enhancing a nightclub psychic act to prove Walter's friend was innocent and Agent Whitaker to be corrupt. Guest cast, Jeff Pomerantz, Harry Rhodes, Anita Dangler and tennis pro Roscoe Tanner makes an appearance. This is Tanner's only acting credit. This is the first of three episodes written by Doug Hayes Jr. The writer got his start in the entertainment industry appearing on The Twilight Zone at age five and appearing in several TV miniseries and TV episodes as a young man. In 1982, he started writing for television, writing for a dozen TV series up to the year 2000. Finally, an episode that seems to be within the actual jurisdiction of the LAPD. Spoofing the designer jeans craze, Cursor reses up designer jeans for Automan, complete with auto jeans signed on the rear pocket. Although this was a sort of by-the-numbers episode, there was some interesting character development. For the first time, Walter is personally involved in the events and is beaten up and defends himself fairly well. Automan formally introduces himself to Walter's co-workers at the force as federal agent Otto Mann, which will carry over to future episodes. We see Automan become interested in yet another topic he wasn't originally programmed for. Let's see, we've had disco dancing soap operas, and now psychic phenomena, and he seems more interested in this than what Walter is going through. We see Walter is a movie fan. A half-sheet for the 1951 film The Man from Planet X is on the wall of his apartment. And at the end, Captain Boyd correctly pronounces Walter's name for the first time. Popular songs heard? Magic, Good News, and Love is a Battlefield. Episode 7, The Biggest Game in Town, written by Larry Brody, directed by Winridge Colby. While Walter is at a video game convention, a power failure blacks out the west side of L.A., and widespread looting breaks out. Walter's terminal at the police department receives a ransom demand 
for $10 million, or the criminals will do even more acts of vandalism. True to their word, they take over L.A. flood control and threaten to flood the area, and later try to blow up an airline as it lands at LAX, with Automan thwarting these attempts. But the bad guys have a final stunt planned, which threatens police headquarters. Guest cast, Rick Lenz, Felton Perry, and Kristen Meadows. We've crossed the halfway mark of the series, and I have to say we have a few interesting concepts presented here, and finally, a plot that presents a situation that seems fitting for this particular show, instead of a generic police show plot that seems adapted for Automan. And quite a lot is presented here. First, a very 21st century computer concept is introduced. Sort of. As the bad guys hack into the power grid and cause a blackout, they hack flight control at LAX and hold the city ransom, the added plot element of a bomb seems awkwardly wedged in and not needed. Bad actors hacking a computer system and demanding a ransom payment is something we've become all too familiar with in the 21st century. Malware that performs this way is typically called ransomware and has been around since 1989 when the AIDS Trojan infected computers via diskettes that were labeled AIDS Information Introductory Diskettes to attendees of the World Health Organization's International AIDS Conference in Stockholm. The disks contained malicious code that hid file directories locked file names, and demanded victims send $189 to a P.O. box in Panama if they wanted their data back. This same process is still done via infected USB drives, labeled as something appealing, and dropped onto the concrete of parking lots, for example, where targeted individuals may work. In a scenario that would seem right at home in this episode, at least two U.S. power stations have been attacked and infected by a malicious malware via this method. And this is thought to be how the Stuxnet malware targeted Iranian nuclear reactors in the late 2000s. And we see the first vulnerability introduced since the first episode. The bad guys have some kind of electron gun they shoot Automan with, which seems to disrupt his energy field, although this is not explained very well. Sadly, nothing more is done with this concept as the script quickly moves on to the next crisis in this well-packed episode. We see Automan pick up a telephone receiver and act as an acoustic modem, and we now have a cell phone in the autocar. But how does Roxanne know what number to call? Walter must have call forwarding. All the arcade games at the convention greet Automan, and a line of dialogue tells us Zaxxon provided him with a clue. And every elevator also greets him, something recycled from the first episode and is overdone, in my opinion. This was the final episode co-produced by Larry Brody, who wrote this episode and the next. There was a production staff shakeup that took place behind the scenes, as we'll explore later in the podcast. Following this episode, Automan went on hiatus for nearly six weeks, returning on March 5th, now on Mondays, against Scarecrow and Mrs. King on CBS, and TV's bloopers and practical jokes on NBC. 
Thursday. The United States of America would like to invite you to come spy with me. Average Americans are recruited into the world of real spies. Some trained agents running around the world. New times require new methods. Everyday people are about to take on the KGB. Why? Your country needs you. Fly to Paris on the premiere of television's newest spy game, Masquerade. Thursday, starting at 9.30, 8.30 Central and Mountain, right after the premiere of Ottoman. Monday. Check it out. It's America's greatest superhero. Otto, stop. Come back. Ottoman's out to set things right. We may never be the same again. So where'd that auto guy go? To Monday nights. Episode 8, Renegade Run, airing Monday, March 5th, 1984. Written by Larry Brody and Doug Hayes Jr. Directed by Alan Burns. Burns was a writer-producer on a lot of MTM productions. The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Phyllis, Rhoda, Lou Grant. This was one of the few instances he ventured into directing. A corrupt Arizona sheriff is illegally using prison labor for his own purposes and attempts to steal some border land owned by Terry, a friend of Walter's, imprisoning her brother Chico. When Walter investigates, he too is taken prisoner and put in the sheriff's work gang. Auto Man takes Lieutenant Curtis out to Arizona so he can help, but Chico has called in a motorcycle gang to break them out. Auto Man has to out-motorcycle the motorcycle gang and lead them into the fray to free Walter and his friends. Guest cast, TV bad guy Richard Lynch, Terry Kaiser, Richard Anderson, Billy Drago, and Gina Gallego. We get a new vehicle in this one, the Autocycle. Automan again dons his Auto Man federal agent persona, and for the first time, Lieutenant Curtis gets to ride in the auto car, and he gets the 90-degree turn treatment. But a few entertaining moments aside, it's another by-the-numbers plot that I'm pretty sure I've seen on the A-Team, Knight Rider, Greatest American Hero, or any number of shows. Popular songs heard... Heart and Soul, and Born to be Wild. Episode 9, Murder MTV. Written by Doug Hayes Jr. From a story by Gurdon Trueblood. Directed by Bruce Seth Green. A music video shoot for rock group Sweet Kicks goes wrong when a sabotaged pyrotechnic effect injures a performer. The LAPD is called and Lieutenant Curtis is on the case with Walter and Auto Man not far behind, revealing an extortion attempt by the mob, which leads to Auto Man playing guitar backup as well as a romantic interest in the lead singer. But Sweet Kick's manager has a secret, one that may cost the lead singer, his own daughter, her life. Meanwhile, we get character development between Walter and Roxanne as they celebrate her one-year anniversary with the department. Guest cast, Laura Branigan, Albert Paulson, Michael Gregory, and Michael McGuire. Ola Ray also appears. The model-actress-singer was in several movies throughout the 80s, and notably was Michael Jackson's girlfriend on his 1983 thriller video. This was a great episode, perfectly integrating an 80s MTV vibe into the show and current hit music into the plot. 
80s TV was king at using popular singers as guest stars. Devo appeared on Square Pegs, Boy George was on the A-Team, Phil Collins on Miami Vice, Debbie Harry on Wise Guy, and Brannigan herself also appeared on Chips. We got three popular songs performed by Laura Brannigan, Hot Night, Gloria, and Satisfaction. Brannigan's song Hot Night is heard multiple times and would be featured two months later in the top hit film of the summer of 1984, Ghostbusters. Her 1979 song, Gloria, hit number two on Billboard's Hot 100 chart and stayed in the top 40 for 22 weeks. It has been featured in numerous films, TV shows, and video games over the years. Brannigan's Satisfaction wasn't given a full release in the U.S., appearing only as a 12-inch vinyl single, only charting as a dance club single. Sadly, Laura Brannigan died from a sudden brain aneurysm in 2004. She was only 52. Episode 10, Murder Take One. Written by Sam Egan. Directed by Kim Manners. A former movie star is the prime suspect in the murder of a Hollywood gossip columnist. Lieutenant Curtis investigates and goes missing leading Walter and Automan to a movie production and a heroin deal, with Automan himself cast as the lead actor. Guest cast Ed Lauter, former Mamas and Papa singer Michelle Phillips, and Hollywood Squares host Peter Marshall. Yes, it's another Sam Egan episode, and I'm beginning to sense a pattern in his Automan writing. We'll talk more about Egan in the next segment. And there's a neat little behind-the-scenes tidbit on this one. When Walter pulls up phone company records on his computer, the entries listed include addresses on the streets, Arnez Junction, Larson Drive, and Kushner Boulevard. References to lead actor Desi Arnez Jr. and producers Glenn A. Larson and Donald Kushner. Popular songs heard? Let's dance. Although it was definitely not David Bowie singing. Episode 11, Zippers. Written by David Garber and Bruce Kalish. Directed by Alan Crosland Jr. What seems to be a simple burglary turns into much more when it turns out a computer chip containing a witness protection program list were among the stolen items. The investigation leads Walter and Roxanne to Zippers, a male strip club. You probably know where this is heading. Automan gives the female audience an eyeful as he performs on stage, as Walter and Lieutenant Curtis end up busting two sets of criminals. Guest cast John Vernon, James Morrison, and James T. Callahan. The writing team of Garber and Kalish would work together on The Fall Guy, The Highwayman, Alien Nation, and 227. And this is not the same David M. Garber that was the supervisor of special visual effects. In a plot a little risque for its 8 p.m. 7 central time slot, this episode features the male stripper fad of the 1980s. Male exotic dancing, for audiences both gay and straight, first began appearing in the United States and Canada in the 1970s, 
By the early 1980s, the growing number of male strip joints and traveling troops indicated the male stripper had arrived as a new and growing part of North America's sexual landscape. In fact, male strippers had appeared the previous October on The Donahue Show when five bikini-briefed men shook their moneymakers to the song Maniac. We get more of Auto Man interacting with electronics, including a silly robot and a female supercomputer that just may be Auto Man's match. Popular songs heard from the new Flashdance soundtrack, Manhunt, and we again heard Rick Springfield's Human Touch, both cover versions. Episode 12, Death by Design. Written by Sam Egan, directed by Gil Bettman. A friend of Lieutenant Curtis is killed in the line of duty, and he begins to investigate, dodging a cop-hating reporter hanging around the station. Auto Man horns in on the case after binging on nasty Eddie movies, which begins to alter his personality. This leads to Officer Mad Dog Auto Man against an underworld kingpin, but has Auto Man gone too far? Meanwhile, it looks like Walter and Roxanne might be taking their relationship to the next level. The director, Gil Bettman, was also an associate producer on the series, as well as The Fall Guy and Knight Rider. And we've reached our final Sam Egan episode, where again, Auto Man is fed Hollywood movies that program his abilities, which Egan added to all his episodes. But here it seems the Dirty Harry-style persona Automan takes on actually seems to take over, which is an interesting direction that could have been explored had the show gone on longer. Our guest cast was John Erickson, Anne Lockhart, and perennial TV bad guy Lance Legault. A production note, this episode featured a scene that was clearly reused from the first episode, where a car attempting to make the same turn the autocar does crashes into the Air Sea Tours building. Popular songs heard? Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, Human Nature, and Karma Chameleon. This was the last aired episode during the original series run, earning a 14.1 rating and a 21 share barely edging out a Scarecrow and Mrs. King rerun, coming in second behind TV's bloopers and practical jokes. Following this episode, ABC again pulled Auto Man from the schedule, calling it a hiatus, but never putting the show back on, preferring to schedule in an ever-rotating slate of specials and odds and ends instead, not even bothering to air the final produced episode. In June, the show's cancellation was announced along with Blue Thunder, The Master, WizKids, Legmen, and Glenn Larson's Masquerade, among others. It wasn't until nine years later the final episode aired in the U.S. Episode 13, Club 10, airing May 8, 1993, on the Sci-Fi Channel. Written by Michael S. Baser and Kim Weiskopf. Directed by Kim Manners. Roxanne's friend, travel writer Laura, leaves a message on her machine that she's in danger. She had been working on a story about the exclusive resort Club 10, which only admits customers considered to be 10s. Automan gets himself admitted to the resort, with Walter tagging along as his valet. 
where they stumble onto a diamond smuggling operation. Our guest cast was Dennis Cole, Marshall Teague, and Don Knight, who had played Chase's father on Manimal. The writing team of Michael S. Baser and Kim Weisskopf were TV writer-producers known for Good Times, Three's Company, and What's Happening Now. Weisskopf later produced Full House, Married with Children, and Sister, Sister. Also, a production note. This episode carries the co-executive producer credit for Larry Brody, meaning it must have been filmed earlier in the season, prior to the mid-series hiatus. Popular songs heard? Got a Hold on Me, Stay With Me Tonight, and we again heard Beat It. Again, like all songs heard over the course of the series, with the exception of Laura Branigan's songs in Episode 9, these were cover versions, quite likely performed and recorded specifically for Fox Television to avoid more expensive royalties involved in airing the original recordings. And that was it for Auto Man. When we come back, we go behind the scenes on show production. Forgotten TV's consideration of Auto Man will return in a moment. Not every great movie or great arcade game makes a great home video game. That's why when Mattel Electronics turned Tron into Tron Home Video Games, we made sure the excitement of Tron gameplay found its way into your home. You'll know it the moment you square off against a recognizer, if you last that long. Four great Tron games, two for Intellivision, two for Atari 2600. From Mattel Electronics, games as good as we say they are, maybe better. Shows you love and they're back. Yours and mine, as close as we can be. It's that special feeling on ABC. Spending time together in a special way. Side by side, we do sharing dreams that happen every day. Special feeling, special kind. Behind the scenes. Yes, here we are again, visiting the TV season of 1983-84, which due to personal circumstances I have elaborated on in other podcasts, I missed a great deal of at the time. I have to say it's always interesting to go back and pick up on the adult humor contained in the episodes. We've covered how many shows embedded adult references on TV of this era. And with a show airing at 8, 7 central and the first primetime show of the evening with a lot of kids watching, this was typically mild and done with a wink to the parents. Several times we see Auto Man struggling with the concepts of romance and sexuality, having not been programmed in these areas. Very similar to how this was handled on 1977's Future Cop, if you recall that podcast. The antics of Cursor were also often sexual in nature, as he, or it, seemed quite interested in human females, 
often buzzing around their bosoms, once drawing dollar signs in the air above a trio of women, insinuating they were ladies of the evening. Well, Walter was right, that wasn't nice. And in the show opening, he draws a heart with an arrow through it in front of a poster of Heather Locklear in a pink bikini who was then starring on Glenn Larson's The Fall Guy. Don't try to deny it. As Heather would say on the DVD extra feature, you were like a naughty digital Tinkerbell. One recurring theme I noticed was the no more for me trope, frequently showing up in episodes. This is where a bewildered spectator witnesses something out of the ordinary and pledges to stop drinking. You know, like in Superman 2, when the three Kryptonians elevate themselves and walk on the lake, and a nearby fisherman looks at his drink and pours it out. But alcohol doesn't always have to be involved, as we see on multiple episodes. Dispatch is Unit 14. I'd like to report seeing it. Seeing a what? I like to report seeing it. Never mind. I, I, I'm going to take the rest of the night off. From now on, I only drink at home. And all I see there is snakes. We're taking the next flight back to Waikiki. Thank you. Maybe I ought to go back to the day shift. Weird. Park it for you, sir? That won't be necessary. Cursor? <laughs> we see Auto Man progress as a character throughout the series, but the way Walter was depicted is sometimes criticized as uneven and inconsistent. Early on, he was the nerdy computer programmer. Gradually, he carries himself differently and even kicks ass in a couple of episodes. As Desi revealed in an early newspaper interview, which we'll quote in a moment, this was intentional and part of the development of his character. Remember, the Automan persona is programmed to be everything Walter wants to be. And through Automan, he was encouraged to develop these traits and come out of his shy personality a bit. There's even a bit of a Clark Kent Superman vibe going on, as Walter wears the glasses in his computer lab, then frequently drops them when he goes out into the field with Automan, all while keeping Automan, which amounts to his alter ego, a secret from his co-workers. Auto Man star Desi Arnaz Jr., the first person ever appearing on the cover of TV Guide as an infant, was born into TV's premier showbiz family in 1953 to parents Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Ball's pregnancy was famously written into the storyline of their show, I Love Lucy. But Desi Jr. didn't play Little Ricky on the show, only appearing once on the final episode along with sister Lucy. When he was nine, he started making guest appearances on The Lucy Show. Then, at 15, he joined the cast of Here's Lucy as Craig Carter, teenage son to Mother Lucy Carter, on that series. 
And you may recall he was the object of Marsha's affection on a 1970 episode of The Brady Bunch. Desi Arnaz Jr.? Hi, Marsha. I'm here to meet my number one fan. Oh, I sure am. For simplicity, I'll drop the junior going forward. Automan was Desi's first series since working with Mother Lucille Ball and Sister Lucy on Here's Lucy. But it certainly wasn't his first TV work since that series. I did some pilots. I did one for David Gerber about a test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base. It was ahead of the right stuff. I did Lampoon for George Slatter. That was to be his next variety show after Laugh-In. Then I did Whacked Out, a sitcom about a writer for a magazine like the National Lampoon. So I've done pilots, and I've done a lot of movies for TV, maybe 15 to 20. I got Automan because they asked me. Actually, I read for it. I was the last one cast, and they still hadn't found what they wanted for Walter. Walter's not what he started out to be. He's actually a sheep in wolf's clothing. This is a story of a man who's created his alter ego. Automan is everything Walter ever dreamed of being as a policeman. He's of another dimension, but sometimes Walter can step into that dimension and join with Automan. Walter lives in his own world, and when he goes out into the real world, he's a little different. Heather McNair is his girlfriend and a police detective. She worries about Walter's welfare. Arnez agrees that the effects make Automan resemble characters from Tron, but he says, They're not really the same. This is more real life, taking it into real situations. Tron took place inside the computer, and this is a comedy, and Tron wasn't a comedy. Besides, we have some special effects that are more recent than Tron. This is like a new frontier in filmmaking. The nature of the live special effects is unique. It's very exciting. Automan star Chuck Wagner had trained in musical theater and had a recurring role on General Hospital when the opportunity for the lead in a new series came along. When it came to filling Automan's suit, creator Glenn Larson commented, we looked for all kinds of people, from bodybuilders to not quite Hulk Hogan, to see what we could find. But ironically, Chuck came in and had a wonderful quality when he read. It was quite a surprise. He hadn't done much. We were having trouble casting that role. He just came in and did it. He was quite good. I thought he did a nice job, and I just liked his quality. I thought he was a good contrast. He was big. They were great together. Wagner related his experience being called in to read for the part. The casting call was a trip. I walked into a room full of godlike men, how I imagined Valhalla must be, and thought it was a long shot that I'd be cast. But I went in sincerely, played it honestly and simply, and Glenn Larson saw something he liked. Director Rick Colby was a fan of the casting of the two leads. I thought the two of them were perfect. I liked Desi. He was so frenetic, and that really worked for his character. But he was his character off the set as well. The guy was like live wire all the time. He was a lot of fun. I liked working with him. Former model Heather McNair was cast as Walter's co-worker, Roxanne. She had been in demand during her modeling years, taking jobs from New York to Japan. Taking a year off in her 20s, she pursued hobbies like cooking and quilting, then her agent got a call from a producer asking if she had any clients who might like to read for a part on an upcoming TV series. I remember I was baking a chocolate cake when Nina called. 
I had wanted to try something new, so I said, I'd like to try it. McNair was among a handful of actresses reading for the role of Roxanne with Arnez, who selected her out of the group. She began shooting Auto Man three days after receiving the initial phone call. Even though she had never acted in her life, except in television commercials, she caught on quickly. They told me to just be myself. They told me I'd be playing someone who was a lot like me. And that's what I've been doing. It's sort of on-the-job training. McNair also appeared on Glenn Larson's cover-up, Knight Rider, and The Highwayman, as well as Days of Our Lives, Probe, and the 1992 film Chaplin. Walter's ally on the LAPD force was played by Robert Lansing, the rugged leading man of 1950s Broadway and 60s, 70s TV had great success in Hollywood with lead roles on 1959's 4D Man and playing police, military, and spy roles in the series 87th Precinct, 12 O'Clock High, and The Man Who Never Was. In 1968, Lansing played the role of Gary Seven on the Star Trek backdoor pilot Assignment Earth. Co-star Desi Arnaz Jr. enjoyed his time with Lansing. He was a lot of fun to work with. He was really one of the first people who did science fiction in the early 50s. There's a certain quality that Robert Lansing has, always mysterious and magnetic. I always thought Robert Lansing was a very, very good actor. He also had a good sense of comedy. He plays it very straight, but he could also be very funny as well. Gerald S. O'Laughlin was cast as Walter's crusty Luddite boss, Captain E.G. Boyd. Like Lansing, he was often cast in police and military roles in shows like The Rookies, The Blue and the Gray, M.A.S.H., and films Ice Station Zebra and Twilight's Last Gleaming. Glenn Larson, Sam Egan, and Doug Hayes Jr. wrote the bulk of the episodes with showrunner Larry Brody doing uncredited rewrites on the early episodes. But if the show had gone on longer, we would have had a familiar name show up in the credits. Two finished scripts went unproduced due to the series' cancellation. These were titled Fly By Night and If Looks Could Kill, and were written by Star Trek alum D.C. Fontana and her brother Richard D.C. Fontana. Fly by Night was a story we originated about a theft of highly classified information from a top security computer company, which was involved in providing equipment for an Air Force stealth plane. This was before it was verified that the U.S. actually had stealth planes. We had it that the information stolen was in regard to the device that would provide protection for the plane against any type of radar or other detection equipment. It was a sort of cloaking device. Because the information was useless without the actual equipment, it was decided Auto Man and his friends would be disguised as Air Force personnel, transferred to the base where the stealth plane was being tested in order to protect the plane from being tampered with or stolen by the people behind the information theft. Naturally, in the course of the adventure, Auto Man winds up flying the stealth plane. Their second script, If Looks Could Kill, was a rewrite of someone else's story revolving around race car drivers, professional models, and murder, and would have climaxed with Auto Man driving in a race. Auto Man was produced at 20th Century Fox Television, shot on various sound stages on the Fox lot, as well as making extensive use of the back lot 
including the famous Hello, Dolly Street. This series was shot on 35mm film, as were virtually all one-hour primetime shows at the time. The establishing shot of the LAPD headquarters building shown in every episode showed the real LAPD HQ that served the department from 1954 until 2009. The building was demolished in 2019. The production time on Automan was much longer than your average one-hour adventure series. Principal filming wrapped in seven or eight days, but then the episode would require three to four weeks of post-production for all the visual effects to be added. The show was thus time-consuming and very expensive to produce, reportedly at a cost of over a million dollars per episode, one of the most expensive TV series ever produced up to that time. The pilot episode cost was significant as well, with much of it shot at night, Arnaz and Wagner were kept working through two different crew shifts to get all their shots filmed, and their overtime was substantial. Automan started filming late in the year, in October, as a replacement series for ABC for the 1983 fall season, too late to be included in ABC's 1983 That Special Feeling fall TV season promo reel. Other new series debuting on ABC that fall were Blue Thunder, Hardcastle and McCormick, Hotel, and Webster, among others. The series Automan replaced on Thursday nights was Trauma Center, a medical drama and yet another Glenn Larson show. Glenn A. Larson was one of the most prolific TV producers of all time, involved in producing over 50 TV series and movies over the course of his career. A career that extensive did not happen without some criticism. Indicating how many of his shows seemed to be imitations of other successful properties, writer Harlan Ellison famously dubbed him Glenn Larceny. James Garner related an encounter with Larson in the parking lot of the set of The Rockford Files, where he punched the producer clear across a curb and into a motorhome, and he came out the other side. Garner states Larson lifted entire plots of Rockford for his shows, for which he was fined by the Writers Guild. And it's true that Alias Smith & Jones bore a resemblance to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Battlestar Galactica came in the wake of the popularity of Star Wars. BJ and the Bear was strikingly similar to Every Which Way But Loose. And Auto Man clearly imitated concepts introduced by Tron. But as John Kenneth Muir brings out in his 2005 book, An Analytical Guide to Television's Battlestar Galactica, Larson is undeniably a controversial figure in TV history because of his reputation for producing video facsimiles of popular films. But scholars, fans, and critics should also consider that similarity is the name of the game in the fast world of TV productions. Shows are frequently purchased, produced, and promoted by networks not for their differences from popular productions, but because of their similarities. So, while Glenn Larson is credited as creator and executive producer of Automan, by my count, he had at least seven shows running on TV five nights of the week at the time, and was not on the set of each show running them. The day-to-day -day show running of Automan was initially handled by 39-year-old Larry Brody. An avid science fiction fan, he was writing for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction by the time he graduated from Northwestern. 
Having written a few TV series, he was one of the writers drafted by DC Fontana during a writer's strike to write for Star Trek the Animated Series. His episode, The Magics of Megas II, has a magical race of beings put the Enterprise crew on trial for past misdeeds of humanity. Bearing a striking similarity to the plot elements added by Gene Roddenberry to DC Fontana's script for the pilot movie of Star Trek The Next Generation, 14 years later. Brody became story editor on Bill Bixby's The Magician and was a producer on Police Story before working with Glenn Larson on The Fall Guy in 1981, being a writer and producer on the first two seasons. From what I have been able to put together from various sources, when Donald Kushner came to Larson to develop a sci-fi series concept, Brody and Larson co-created Auto Man, with only Larson receiving created by credit. This is certainly not the whole story, with more going on behind the scenes than we may ever be privy to. The thin origin story as told on the DVD is one-sided, and only told from the perspective of Glenn Larson, with other behind-the-scenes crew not even invited to participate. Larry Brody wrote two episodes of Auto Man, and rewrote others during his run as co-exec producer in the first half of the series. And he did so the old-fashioned way, on a typewriter. As he tells it, Computers terrified me. What if I forgot to save? What if it ate my masterpiece anyway? How would Lee Majors know what to say? Ironic, given the premise of the show he was now running. But just as the show got a couple of decent episodes under its belt and had the promise of potentially better concepts being integrated into show plots, there was an unseen production shakeup, and the show went on hiatus. When Auto Man came back from that six-week break in March, Larry Brody's name inexplicably no longer appeared in the end credits as co-executive producer. Evidently, this is where Brody parted ways with the show production, and he never worked with Glenn Larson again. Brody later co-created the syndicated Super Force and worked on several Marvel animated shows in the late 90s. Larry Brody has published two books on writing for television and maintains the TVWriter.com website. The supervising producer for Auto Man was Sam Egan, who wrote four of the episodes. Egan had been a writer on Quincy M.E. and The Incredible Hulk. Egan told Forgotten TV about his experience being brought onto the show following the pilot episode. I was hired by Fox and Glenn Larson after my four years on Quincy to produce and write one of the seven shows that Glenn had on the networks at that time. Auto Man was my second choice, as I read through the scripts, but the medical series I preferred was fully staffed. In any case, I came to the show after the pilot had been shot, so the concept was in place, though it evolved over the course of production. Three days into my tenure on Auto Man, Glenn took me to lunch and said, Go home and get a toothbrush. We're going to Hawaii tonight. A limo picked me up, and we took Glenn's private plane to his home, a mansion near Diamond Head in Honolulu. Actually, I stayed in his second oceanfront mansion next door, used for overflow, when there was lots of family and riders at the same time. It was so surreal, working in this paradise-like environment, with all the pressure of deadlines and reigning in the boss always looming. It's the age-old Hollywood dilemma, the glitter versus reality. No complaints, though. It was fun, even when it wasn't. 
After Larry Brody left midway through the series run, Sam Egan took over as showrunner, keeping his supervising producer title. He continued, telling me the ongoing issues that faced the production of the show. Because Auto Man happened at a time when digital and optical effects were quite expensive, we had to be sparing in our use of them. And yes, it did take more time and money. But the effects were modest and many reused, such as driving the autocar. The challenge of the show, for me, was avoiding the trap of giving our hero too many powers. It was a big leap of faith that Auto Man could physically interact in the real world, and that even objects he conjured could have physicality. I fought Larson's tendency to expand these powers. I argued a superhero has to have limits, or his challenges become too easy. Auto Man faced the true limits of his power when he was taken off the TV schedule, following the April 2nd episode, supposedly being put on another hiatus. But it was officially canceled in June, and joined the long list of short-lived sci-fi concept shows that met the ratings acts, placing number 68 out of 101 shows, with an overall rating of 13.6 and a 21 share. The fact that the show still had a 21 share of the audience, meaning the percentage of TV sets turned on at the time, after having been moved from Thursdays, where it had competed with Magnum P.I., another Glenn Larson show, is not lost on Sam Egan. The irony of getting bumped off the air by Magnum is that we still had a huge audience by today's network standards. Auto Man seems to share a characteristic with its cinematic predecessor. Just as Tron was misunderstood by those in the movie industry, Larry Brody told Starlog magazine in 1993. It was a great premise at the time. Unfortunately, it was played for the lowest common denominator, and it was done by people who didn't understand science fiction. They were afraid of what they were doing, and they kept backing away. The ABC executives just didn't get it. I thought it was cute. It wasn't an adult science fiction show. It was geared for younger audiences. But we lost all the fun. When reached for comment, Brody expanded on this, telling Forgotten TV that Auto Man was a very difficult one to write because the act of writing scripts that made full use of the premise ultimately was in direct conflict with that of writing scripts that could be made on budget and on time. I know that often seems the situation with TV shows, but on this one, the problem was more extreme than usual. At the time, I felt that my obligation as co-exec producer-showrunner was to the wonderful, hard-working cast and crew who depended on the scripts and ultimately to the audience, as opposed to those whose only goals were financial. Director Rick Colby agreed that the show was generally well-executed, However, there were issues. I think it was overly ambitious. We had a lot of technical problems. At that time, video and blue screens were not that well developed. Chuck Wagner has expressed regret regarding the short run of the series. Desi and I had high hopes that we could explore the interdimensional aspects and higher spiritual implications inherent in the concept. But alas, it was not to be. TV in the 80s followed predictable formulas, and while many of us on the creative team strove to bring enlightening ideas to the job, at the end of the day, we were grateful that anything was made. 
Researching the show, I found it surprising this was not the first time the character name of Automan was used. Robot number 32196 was a yellow-orange robotic character appearing three times in the comic book Tales of the Unexpected between 1965 and 1966. Appearing as a robot for hire, he was created by Professor Miller Sterling and was called Automan, the Automatic Man. A graduate of Professor Sterling's School for Robots, Automan was hired out for everything from firefighting to being a house servant and bodyguard. When hired by criminals, he surprises them by dropping their illegal cargo into the ocean capturing them and delivering them to law enforcement, complete with audio-visual recordings of their crimes. You see, Professor Sterling installed an anti-evil device into his robotic creations. No word on whether any of the creative people involved were aware of this 1960s comic character. Let's talk about that fantastic Automan theme song you've heard a snippet of in every opening of Forgotten TV. While shows like Airwolf and Knight Rider had a more serious tone with a hint of badassery, the tone of the Automan theme let us know we could sit back and not take things too seriously. It tells us exactly what kind of show we were in for. The good guys were good, the bad guys were going to get caught, and the episode would conclude with a joke and a freeze-frame ending. Weren't the 80s great? The credits tell us this great theme was composed by Billy Henshee and Stu Phillips. Let's unpack that. If you're a listener of the show, you likely recognize the name Stu Phillips. The 70s, 80s legend worked with Glenn Larson several times on Battlestar Galactica, Switch, Buck Rogers, The Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries, Knight Rider, The Fall Guy, and The Highwayman. Billy Henshee is a singer composer, and a former musician for the Beach Boys. He performed backup vocals for the rock trio America, Joan Jett, and Elton John's hit Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. He also appeared on a 1960s RC Cola commercial featuring Automan star Desi Arnaz Jr. and Dean Paul Martin. Come over The trio were known as Dino, Desi, and Billy, and they had been friends since elementary school. The group's first audition was for Frank Sinatra, who signed them to his record label, Reprise Records. They performed on The Ed Sullivan Show and other TV variety shows of the era and had hit songs, I'm a Fool, and Not the Love and Kind in the mid-60s before any of them were yet 15 years old. In 1969, the trio contributed three songs to the soundtrack of the surfing documentary Follow Me. Who was the composer of the film score? None other than Stu Phillips. So, on to the story behind the Automan theme. After Desi Jr. was cast, he reached out to longtime friend Billy Henshee to see if he'd be interested in providing a theme for the show. Even though Fox had their own music composers on staff that were also working on a theme, Henshee sat down at his piano and began putting together a melody. In a Forgotten TV exclusive, Billy Henshee shared his account 
of composing the now familiar theme. Desi was already cast in the show Ottoman. And it was early on, and he said, Billy, would you want to try and write a theme song for Ottoman? And I said, well, sure, I'll try. You know, now I'd never written a theme song for a television show or anything else for that matter. And, um, you know, I was a student at UCLA, uh, never took uh, a, a, a songwriting course for TV. You know, I took other music classes, but um, so I, I just... Uh, did it uh, as a sort of a, a challenge and an opportunity and a possibility. So I, you know, I set about to, to write the song and I went down, I have my beautiful uh, baby grand piano uh, at my sister's home in Santa Monica. This is um, Mason and Hamlet. And I just sat down. It was, it's an absolutely uh, inspired kind of a song because in the sense that, you know, sometimes, a writer gets stuck. Sometimes I get stuck writing songs, and I've written quite a few. And um, I just sort of put my hand on the piano and went like this. I went, huh, well, that's a start, you know. And I did it again, you know, and I added the bass. You know, then I went, huh, how about... And then I just kept going. Wow, that sounds real good, <laughs> you know. And then that became the the basis of of the song. So it went on from there. So having written, you know, I I, I finished the song in short order. For me, you know, it just was an inspired song. As I said, it just came out. It was an instrumental. I didn't have to worry about any words. Mm-hmm. And um, after that bit, I needed to tie the verse into the second verse, so I added the... chords, the connector chords. Oh, what did I do with the bitch? Uh, so there I had the song. That was it. Verse, two verses, bridge, everything complete. As told by Hinchy, he recorded his completed theme with several friends playing on drums, bass, and synthesizer, recording the theme at a Santa Monica studio, and then submitted this completed demo to studio liaison Martin KitKat. Fox Television liked the theme and wanted it for the show, but told him he would be sharing composing credit with Stu Phillips. Phillips was working at Fox Television and did the music for virtually all Glenn Larson show themes at that time. Phillips made minor changes to the arrangement, altering the bass line, resulting in the now familiar theme. Thus, Stu Phillips was added to the composed by in the closing credits. Having to share credit is not all that unusual in the entertainment industry. Stu Phillips himself was forced to share music credits with Lionel Newman as music supervisor during his tenure at Fox Television on The Fall Guy, Masquerade, and Auto Man. 
even though Newman didn't have anything to do with the music supervision on these shows. Due to Newman's position as head of the music department at 20th Century Fox, he received credit as music supervisor on all Fox-produced shows. Otto Mann is Billy Henchy's only TV or film composing credit. These days, he keeps busy teaching music and hosting his own weekly show, Live from Billy's Place, watchable on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find a link to it here in the show notes. Thursday, hot headlines. Turn trauma center inside out. The next person on their staff that gets their name in the papers is going to be fired. Mayday. This guy's not going to have any gold now. Trauma center. Monday. Mark's falling into the generation gap. I feel like I'm lost somewhere between Rick Springfield and Lawrence Welk. Rick who? Hardcastle and McCormick. Automan producer Donald Kushner, visual effects supervisor Bill Croyer, effects animator John Van Vliet, and airbrush artist William L. Arantz had all worked on Disney's film Tron. As mentioned at the beginning, Kushner's newly formed production company, Kushner Lock Productions, was instrumental in triggering series development for Automan, having approached Glenn Larson to develop a TV series concept and they ended up co-producing the show with Larson Productions. Van Vliet had just started his own visual effects company called Available Light Limited, and their very first job they landed was Auto Man. Later projects included Ghostbusters, Buckaroo Banzai, Captain EO, and Stargate, among many others. Model maker Jay Roth designed and built the miniature for the autoplane used throughout the series. He later worked on Spaceballs and My Stepmother is an Alien, among a dozen other projects. Bill Croyer commented on how Tron opened the floodgates of visual effects possibilities. Tron was the beginning. It was the moment when computer graphics made its first contact with the animation industry. Like the sperm in the egg. It was neat because nobody had ever done it before. There were no experts around so I inherited the position of Director of Animation. Luckily, I caught on to it pretty well. The effects used in Auto Man are clearly a visual callback to Tron, even though the methods used were completely different than the ones from that film. In Tron, computer-generated imagery was used extensively in a film for the first time. Actors carried out scenes in front of a blue screen, never seeing the environment they were supposed to be existing in, with that not added until post-production. This early CGI was accomplished on computers that had 2 megabytes of RAM, and much of the animation was manually programmed, frame by frame. There was no software for CGI at the time, but more of the effects work was done with older analog photographic techniques than you might think there was a total of about 20 minutes of CGI on Tron. The remaining effects were accomplished with matte paintings, hand-drawn animation, and rotoscoping. On Automan, many of the effects were accomplished live in-camera on set, cutting down on post-production time. Effects added in post were done via more traditional methods. Although you might think otherwise by watching the show, Computer animation was not used on Auto Man, 
there would have been no way to do so in the limited time frame allowed by a weekly series production. So, how were some of these effects done? Automan's vehicles were outlined with retroreflective tape, which glowed blue when lit, and this live effect was impressive on camera, especially at night. This effect had previously been done on the movie Tron, as we'll see in a moment. The same reflective tape was used to outline the collar and sleeve cuffs of Automan's incognito wardrobe. When the vehicles were rezzed up, a traditionally animated sequence with coloring matching the retro-reflective tape was superimposed in post. These animations could be reused numerous times as long as the vehicle was framed consistently in camera. Watching the episode run, when they used a new animation for the autocar, for example, shown materializing from a different angle, it is quite noticeable. The way the autocar traveled down the road in 90-degree turns, accompanied by a high-pitched hum, was very reminiscent of the light cycles in Tron. The blue-glowing outline of the autochopper very closely resembled the Incom helicopter from Tron, which was outlined with a reddish glow, which made use of the same retro-reflective tape. They, in fact, used the same make-and-model helicopter, as we'll cover in a moment. The 90-degree turn gimmick was something director Rick Colby came up with. I'm not tooting my own horn here, but I think I believe I was the one who introduced that whenever a crime was made, a 90-degree left or right turn would make Desi, inside the auto car slam into the left or right side. For the car, there's no gravity to consider, but Desi would obviously be the one to slam into the side windows. We all thought it was very funny. Automan's digital sidekick, Cursor, a floating polyhedron that communicated with Automan through beeps and bloops, a la R2-D2, was animated by Bill Croyer, and his language was provided by Paul Fox. It seems hard to deny Cursor was inspired by Bit from Tron. Sometimes during filming, a ball at the end of a stick was used as a reference point to represent Cursor for physical interactions with the actors. Otherwise, the actors simply acted using their own imaginations, and Cursor was then animated in post-production. But the singular effect the show was known for was Automan himself. Automan's costume was designed by Jean-Pierre Dorliac. The Emmy Award-winning French designer had been the costume designer for Battlestar Galactica and Tales of the Gold Monkey, and designed Ralph's supersuit on The Greatest American Hero. In 1983, he was working on Glenn Larson shows Masquerade and Manimal when he was asked to design a costume for Automan. I reached out to Mr. Doliak, specifically asking about the potential Tron influences on the costume design. There was never any mention of Tron in the conception of the Automan costume. Strangely enough, I was considered for Tron, but turned it down as I felt I had done too much science fiction by then. On Tron, the costume elements were lit using backlit animation, filming the actors in black and white on a black set, then projecting colored light through the frame from behind. A very laborious process that typically took five different photographic exposures of the actors in costume. The original black and white image, the body color element, the circuit glow element, the face element, and the final composite. In some scenes, each frame of film 
using up to 30 optical layers with hand-drawn outlines and coloring. Something so labor-intensive and costly, it's something that no other film has done before or since. For Automan, the costume was basically a navy blue spandex unitard. According to Chuck Wagner, the show went through about 10 of these costumes over the course of the series. The already 6'5 Wagner was given 4-inch heels to give him an even larger-than-life appearance. To accomplish the famous Automan blue glow, Dorliac took inspiration from Yvonne Blake, designer of the iconic costumes for 1978's Superman the Movie. The same reflective material developed by 3M that was used to dress Jor-El and the Kryptonians for that film was placed in pattern segments on the costume. The reflective fabric used was able to reflect nearly 100% of the light shown on it. Panels of the costume would then have a starfield effect added in post, similar to what is now done with green screen. Chuck Wagner explains the effect. The panels that look white in the unfinished shots were actually front projection screen material that was highly reflective. They filmed it with a beam splitter, a rig mounted on the camera that shot a bright light through a two-way mirror set at 45 degrees. The light hit the mirror, then the costume, and then bounced back through the mirror into the lens, making the panels much hotter than the ambient scene. Then a negative was made from that film, creating a traveling mat. Then the starfield pattern was added in a third pass. It was a very complicated and expensive film-based process, supervised by effects genius David Garber. Jean-Pierre Dorliac spent two weeks designing the Ottoman costume. However, a special effects advisor originally was insistent on using the same retroreflective tape used on the vehicle's for the panels on the costume. Although Dorliac insisted this would not work well and would only crack when worn, the effects man was adamant the reflective tape be used. I'll let Dorliac tell the rest of the story. Under his instructions, a $3,000 suit was constructed that was a total disaster even before the first shot. Every time Chuck moved, the taut, stitched-down tape cracked. In desperation, the set costumer simply adhered another piece over it, so it wouldn't take up camera time. By the end of two hours, the unitard resembled a molting rhinoceros. Finally, upon seeing the outcome, production ordered another suit made overnight with a fabric made by the same company that had the same reflective power, but with some give. Overtime hours and over-overtime costs to get it finished for camera while the episode shot around it created a final, staggering sum that raised the rafters of 20th Century Fox's accounting department. As always, the very disgruntled production manager couldn't understand why the costs of things were so high. That was because he was so consumed with other rising costs, had little knowledge of what a costume department did, didn't really care, and believed the lies special effects told him so they wouldn't have to shoulder the exorbitant costs. When the hullabaloo to create the costume was finally resolved, production ordered two more of the suits for second unit and stunts, despite the outcries of the Fox money men. That is from Dorliac's book, The Naked Truth, which I want to thank him for the autographed and notated copy he sent. 
He would later work on The Highwayman, Max Headroom, and Quantum Leap. Chuck Wagner's costumes have been sold at auction over the years. A full outfit was sold at auctioneer Camden House in May 1989 in Los Angeles. Prop collector 80s Kid Geek obtained two nearly complete outfits, just missing the gloves and boots, including that original costume failure with the panels made of the reflective tape, as well as a half-costume tunic Wagner would wear inside the autocar interior. As Wagner mentioned, David M. Garber was supervisor of special visual effects for the show, who also worked on Larson's Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, and Galactica 1980. And let's talk about those fantastic Automan vehicles. The technical consultant for Automan's vehicles was Michael Chaffee, who coordinated the construction of Kit on Knight Rider, as well as the time-traveling DeLorean on Back to the Future. The autocar was a real 1974 Lamborghini Countach LP400, a car which belonged to executive producer Glenn Larson. While the actors may have gotten in and out of it, Wagner was not allowed to drive it, leaving that task to a professional stunt driver. Scenes inside the car were shot in a mock-up of the interior. Larson had collected quite a bit of toys by the time Automan made it to the screen. According to Larry Brody, he had seven houses, a fleet of limousines, the biggest collection of antique slot machines in the world, among other niceties. The Autochopper was a Bell 206 Jet Ranger, the same type of helicopter used by the fictional Incom Corporation in 1982's Tron. This very popular airframe has appeared numerous times in film and TV, such as in Diamonds Are Forever, The Spy Who Loved Me, Blue Thunder, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and the 1970s Aussie TV series Chopper Squad. The autocycle used in a single episode is harder to nail down, and I could find nothing to confirm the model. But structurally, it bears a striking resemblance to a Honda XL500 off-road bike, one of the same motorcycles later used for Streethawk. The modifications to the original Streethawk motorcycle were designed by Andrew Probert, who worked on designs for Battlestar Galactica, Airwolf, and worked with Michael Chaffee, on the Back to the Future DeLorean. Streethawk was redesigned by Ron Cobb, which will be extensively explored in a future Streethawk podcast. Just who designed the looks and mods on the Autochopper, whether it was Chaffee, Probert, Cobb, or yet someone else, is unclear. Automan stunt coordinator Bob Bralver is known for his work on nearly 200 projects, going back to the 60s, with Star Trek The Original Series, and was seen on screen in several episodes. He would extensively work with Glenn Larson Productions on Hardy Boys, Battlestar Galactica, The Fall Guy, and Knight Rider, in addition to Automan. Automan's target audience, visual appeal, and great vehicles made it seem like a natural for toy spin-offs. But due to the short life of the series, these never materialized on a wide scale. However, there were a few licensed toys released by UK-based Acamas Toys. When the stars were flown to England to promote the show, they were shown the now-rare Acamas toy line. On seeing his toy likeness, Chuck Wagner was able to muse, Hey, 
I'm an action figure. Yes, the premium item of this toy line was Automan himself as a five and a half inch action figure sold on a blister card. The back of the card it came on revealed it to be the first of a planned line of figures, which would also include Walter Nebaker, Captain Boyd, and Lieutenant Curtis. What, no love for Roxanne? The short run of the show nixed the remaining planned figures. The Automan figure shows up more often than you think on the collector's market. Currently, there are five for sale on eBay, with selling prices ranging from $50 for a loose figure to nearly $300 for one still in packaging on the blister card. Information on the complete toy line is hard to come by, but it seems many of these items, if not all of them, were only available in the UK. Among the additional toys that we know were released included a 5-inch battery-operated autocar with working lights, an Automan costume set, one of those terrible vinyl ponchos with plastic masks, similar to the Ben Cooper Halloween costumes of the era. The Automan mask was not a good resemblance of Chuck Wagner. This is because Acamas reused their Luke Skywalker mold to produce it. I personally think it resembled Kevin Sorbo more than either one of those actors. Toys from other licensees included a slot car racing set produced by CBS Toys, a 1985 Commodore 64 video game by Bugbite, the gameplay of which revealing it was a generic ladders and platforms style game in imitation of Mario Brothers with an Automan graphics splash screen added, as well as various rack toys marketed by manufacturer JRU. You know, those terrible carded toys sold at convenience stores that had the licensed branding inexplicably slapped on a range of items that have nothing to do with the property involved. These included puzzles. One of these just sold this month on eBay for $110. Plastic binoculars, toy flashlights, stamp and ink kits, and a wrist propeller launcher marketed as the Automan Autocopter. There was also a novelization of the pilot episode released in 1984 by Target Books, written by Martin Noble, who also novelized Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Ruthless People, and Ten Men. After Automan Automan was Desi Arnaz Jr.'s last TV series, only having a single further TV guest appearance on an episode of Matlock. In 1986, he moved to Boulder City, Nevada, purchasing the historic Boulder Theater, where, with his wife Amy, they direct the non-profit Boulder City Ballet Company. In 1992, he returned to the screen, appearing in the film The Mambo Kings, playing his own father, Desi Arnaz Sr. Hola, amigos. Hola. Desi Arnaz. Oh, my God. Hola. That's Desi Arnaz. This is my manager, Mike Wells. Pleasure to meet you both. Hi, Mike. How are you? Mike, hello. <laughs> I am so pleased to meet you. <laughs> Me too. Me too. That's it. Mucho gusto. Sadly, friend Dino, or Dean Paul Martin, died in an aviation crash in 1987 while serving in the California Air National Guard. In 1998, Desi reunited with friend Billy Henchy and were joined by Dean Paul's younger brother, Ricky, to reinvent their old group now performing as Ricky, Desi, and Billy for several years. The multi-talented Chuck Wagner following Automan appeared on a few TV guest roles, as well as the post-apocalyptic 1986 film, America 
3000, which has achieved something of a cult status due to being featured on the 2014 Canon Films documentary Electric Boogaloo and YouTube channels The Cinema Snob, Brandon Tenold, and Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst. A few years following Auto Man, he appeared on David Letterman's The Late Show as the singing CBS mailman and told me it was a lot of fun. Like the CBS mailman, I deliver the mail Through the rain and through the snow And even through the hail, yes, I deliver the letters So Dave can read them on the show That was, that was, that was great, but you know, I still have no idea who that guy is. I, I don't think we have a CBS mailman. Security, boys, take care of this guy. Do you mind? Uh-oh, wait a minute. Get but he's been out. most active on the stage, appearing as the Beast for over five years in Disney's musical, Beauty and the Beast, as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in a stage production of Jekyll and Hyde, and on Broadway in the world's most popular musical, as Javert in Les Miserables, Van Helsing in Dracula the Musical, and Athos in The Three Musketeers, not to mention his many regional and cruise line theatrical appearances, including his critically acclaimed one-man shows, Classic and Living Please the Dream. make some noise for the incredible Chuck Wagner! He also spent four years as ringmaster of Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. The man has been quite busy. He also genuinely interacts with fans and embraces his place in TV history as Auto Man, as we shall see. These days, he teaches master classes in musical theater, shares his motivational talk, Prevailure. And when things return to a semblance of normalcy, plans to return to touring the world with his one-man shows. Right now, he regularly provides content for fans on his YouTube channel. Heather McNair, after Auto Man, appeared on Glenn Larson's cover-up, Knight Rider, and The Highwayman, also in the forgotten TV series Probe, and the 1992 film Chaplin. In 2010, she wrote, produced and directed the short comedy film Wonderland Hospital, released in New Zealand. Since, she has returned to a private life out of the public eye. Robert Lansing continued his long TV and film career for several more years, appearing on Hotel, Murder, She Wrote, Law & Order, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, and The Equalizer as McCall's old friend from the company, known only as control. A heavy smoker, he sadly died from lung cancer in 1994 at age 66. Gerald S. O'Loughlin continued to make TV guest appearances in Cover Up, Highway to Heaven, Our House, Murder She Wrote, ER, Chicago Hope, and other shows throughout the 90s, and was in the 80s films City Heat and Quicksilver. He died in 2015 at age 93. Following the series' run, Auto Man ended up influencing another artificially intelligent character, 
Chuck Wagner tells of an encounter he had just a few years following the series' original run. I did have a great sci-fi moment soon after we finished the series on the bridge of the Enterprise in the first season on Star Trek The Next Generation. I was visiting Brent Spiner, who had starred with me in The Three Musketeers on Broadway. Brent had been asked what influenced him as he prepared to play Data, and he had answered Chuck Wagner as Auto Man. When told this on set, Patrick Stewart in full Jean-Luc Picard uniform looked me square in the eyes and said, Quel homage. It was a very cool moment. The Star Trek series extensively explored the concept of sentient AI holograms, from the next generation's Moriarty to the emergency medical hologram on Voyager. With his 29th century mobile emitter, the Doctor's character fulfilled the original concept of Automan, able to exist anywhere in our three-dimensional world, complete with a feasible science fiction explanation for his operation. The series Red Dwarf, Time Tracks, Sequest DSV, as well as 2002's The Time Machine, all featured self-aware holographic characters. Years after the original run, Automan was rerun on the Sci-Fi Channel as part of its series collection, and they ran it several times over the years, from 1993 to 2001. The series has also aired in Canada, France, Australia, South America, Argentina, and likely other countries, and on UK's Bravo TV. He's a great cop. His partner's virtually the same, only better. A million gigabytes of law enforcement with all the right bits and hardware to match. A computer-generated policeman who's not always PC, while others surf the net. This is it. I warned you. Warned him, not me. He nets the crooks. Autoban, Tuesdays at 6.30 on Bravo. Primarily due to the fact that Sci-Fi ran it for about eight years, and UK's Bravo TV aired it as recently as 2005, as well as the fact that it has a visual connection to Tron. Automan never really went away. And for a show that only aired 12 episodes on the original ABC airing, has a pop culture awareness that seems to defy its short life. In 2010, Tron itself again entered the pop culture zeitgeist, 28 years after the release of the original film, with Tron Legacy. You've created a vast, complex system. In there is a new world. In there is our future. In there is our destiny. Eerily similar to what happened with the original, Tron Legacy grossed $400 million worldwide, but it cost $170 million to make, not counting marketing and distribution. Although initially planning a third Tron film, the lukewarm reception of ancillary toy and video game sales, declining ratings of the Tron Uprising animated series on Disney XD, as well as a slate full of films with a proven box office formula, that is, live-action remakes of animated hits and Marvel superhero films, caused Disney to drop plans for a third Tron in 2015. Thus, the Tron franchise seems to have come to an end. For now. With Auto Man being an often-requested DVD on online message boards, 
Fabulous Films released the series to DVD in the UK in 2012, which included that 40-minute documentary featuring Glenn Larson and the surviving actors discussing the show, which we've talked about. Fabulous Films flew Chuck Wagner and Heather McNair to Boulder City, Nevada, to reunite the cast and film the interview segments at Desi's historic Boulder Theater. In 2015, Fabulous Films teamed with Shout Factory to release the show on DVD in the U.S., recycling the extra content from the first release. In 2017, digital content creator and all-around talent Aaron Rabinowitz from film production software company Red Giant teamed with Stargate Atlantis actor David Hewlett to produce Hulogram, a five-minute short video that was both an homage and spoof of Automan. Fortunately for me, Aaron's advanced knowledge of computer-generated imagery led him to work on an animation of what is called a hologram. That's a very fancy word for an image that, when perfected for a Hollywood movie, can be made to look far worse than the real thing, and more blue. In the video, a software writer brings to life a humanoid hologram and in a series of snippets, act out an 80s-style TV intro and closing credits that sneak in references to Tron, Airwolf, and Knight Rider. And even Chuck Wagner and Cursor make cameo appearances at the end. A link to this great video, as well as the -the behind-the-scenes making of, are in the show notes. Since this 2017 video short was posted online, there seems to have been a resurgence of interest in Automan. A search on your podcast player likely reveals several podcasts on the show. Podcasts, I used to watch this, The Pilot Project, Sci-Fi Graveyard, Launching the Pilot, Battle of the Network Shows, Eventually Super Train, and likely others have all done episodes on Automan. In 2019, the Argentinian documentary series Ayer No Mas did an episode on Automan. Automas, ese soy yo. And YouTube has revealed a resurgence of interest in Automan, with channels Toy Galaxy and Johnny Bach both doing recent videos on the series. And you can even find cover versions where performers provide their own interpretations of the classic 80s theme. Cursor, cue up the montage. You can tell there is a love for Billy Hinchy's theme, which intentional or not, you can practically hear Walter's command he would type into the computer in those five notes. 
Calling Auto Man. 1983 was an exciting year for sci-fi and adventure. In theaters, audiences were treated to the right stuff. War Games, Twilight Zone the Movie, and Return of the Jedi. On TV, Tales of the Gold Monkey, Knight Rider, the miniseries V, The A-Team, Airwolf, and WizKids stirred our imaginations. To cap off the year in December, ABC's Ernie Anderson told us to stay tuned for Auto Man, a sci-fi adventure cop show that made us believe in an automatic computerized man zigzagging L.A. streets in a glowing Lamborghini. Watching Auto Man again after all these years took me back to that more innocent time. Many of the plots may have been run-of-the-mill, able to be plugged into virtually any Glenn Larson show, but it was visually unique, with effects never before performed on TV, and was great weeknight popcorn entertainment. The show was ambitious, and like its inspiration Tron, a little ahead of its time when concepts and terms presented had to be explained to the average viewer. Holograms, cross-referencing, interfacing, data backups, computer crashes. I can't help but think that in the right time slot, the show would have been more successful if introduced just a couple years later. You're right, Cursor. What we got was great fun. And who knows? With all the entertainment properties being brought back as movies and TV shows we could see Auto Man make a return. Chuck Wagner agrees. It would be great fun to see Auto Man 2.0. I still think the concept is intriguing, and with today's technology, the possibilities are limitless. For now, through our DVDs, we can enjoy it all over again, providing a welcome distraction which a lot of us could use right about now. After all, who wouldn't want a glowing holographic hero at our beck and call simply by opening a command prompt and typing in that magic phrase, calling Auto Man, access code, Crime Fighter. Coming to Forgotten TV in the first half of 2021. Nineteen seventy nine's Angie from nineteen eighty five Street Hawk, nineteen seventy two's Search, and from nineteen eighty four the the series. And you never know who is going to show up for these podcasts, so stay tuned to Forgotten TV in memory of Mike McPadden. Crack or get off the pot. 
More research goes into Forgotten TV than you might think. For each show, I reach out to more cast and crew members than end up responding and being quoted on the show. There's newspaper archive and IMDb subscriptions that enable me to uncover long-forgotten articles and contact industry professionals, not to mention equipment, hosting, and so on, for a podcast that is still advertisement-free and listener-supported. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and gain access to Forgotten TV's supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond what is considered in the main show. Recent podcasts covered the real history of Aunt Jemima, the untold real history of the video rental industry, as well as full conversations with guests like Billy Henchy and sneak previews of the podcast before final release. A link to join us on Patreon is in the show notes. We'd love to have you. This episode was executive produced by Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. Thanks to Kenneth Taylor for the DVD used. With producers Beatrice McWilliams, Julio Coppa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, and Ron. Also thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by ABC, 20th Century Fox, 20th Television, Glenn Larson Productions, Kushner Lock Productions, Walt Disney Pictures, Fabulous Films, Shout Factory, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show, film, or streaming service mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases made. Automan, Tron, and all mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2020 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, forgotten TV media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. Special thanks to Larry Brody, Sam Egan, Jean-Pierre Doliac, Billy Henchy, Stu Phillips, Chuck Wagner, and Leo Gonzalez. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making most of that audio possible. Chuck Wagner, Ayerno Mas, Sean MC, Logic Smash, Lex the Bookworm, The Professionals, Topic, Foy Wonder, The W909, Retro Ontario, Leo Lim, Amazon Freaks 967, Christine McVie Topic, Scotteth Games, NBC Classics, The Ed Sullivan Show, Mad Commodore, Doug Barron, The Rap Sheet, Culture Out of Control, Tron, Red Giant, Capturator, Javier Bustacara Ruiz, Stefano Ercolino Official, Richard Corpel, Bull Bayless Music, Wolf Heathen, Chiptune and Synthwave, The Time Warp, 
Sources of quotes and background information were obtained from the following websites and vintage magazine issues. John Kenneth Muir's Cult TV Flashback, Geek Dad, TV Writer, Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, Your Props, Drive Tribe, Internet Movie Plane Database, Internet Movie Car Database, Slow Robots Starlogged, Back in Toys Forum, Toy Archive, Figure Archive, Super Saturday Short-Lived Showcase. The Magazines, Starburst, number 59, Starlog, numbers 84 and 189, Fangoria, number 157, and the books, Science Fiction Television Series 1959-1989 through 1989 by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia, Turning Points in Television and Television Writing from the Inside Out by Larry Brody, The Encyclopedia of Superheroes on Film and Television, Stu Who by Stu Phillips, The Naked Truth by Jean-Pierre Doliac. Thank you for listening. Be sure and follow Forgotten TV on Facebook and Twitter, all linked up for you at Forgotten.tv. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Calling Auto Man. Calling Auto Man. Kuntaj.